Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, President and Founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Welcome to our monthly employer teleconference series. Today I have two of my brilliant and amazing attorneys at the Murthy Law Firm, Alyssa Klein, who's in our H-1B non-immigrant department, and Kevin Andrews, who's in our labor certification and green card department. Each of them has been with the Murthy Law Firm for several years, and we will discuss upon Im the impact of the American Competitiveness in the 21st Century Act, or AC21 law, and how it impacts both the H-1B and the green card process. As most of you know, the AC21 law was signed over 10 years, over a decade ago, back in October of 2000 by President Bill Clinton in the waning days of his Congress. Um, so far, we have had absolutely no regulations issued by USCIS on this law. We have had several memos that have touched upon AC21 and discussed it, and just one precedent decision, the matter of Al-Vazan, which is a 2010 Administrative Appeals Office decision. Uh, in this particular case, matter of Al-Vazan, the AAO held that the I-140 must have been approvable when filed, and it's not enough to simply have an I-485 pending for 180 days and show a same or similar job in order to be eligible. It can be an issue when the I-140 and I-485 have been filed concurrently and the approved I-140 has a notice of intent to revoke after the beneficiary or the employee has already ported to another company. So since most of you are employers or businesses and you're trying to figure out how to use AC21 for your employees' H-1 extensions, for green card employees that you're hiring who started the green card with another company and are now moving to you, we're going to analyze that in detail. So, Kevin, I know that you had participated recently, about a month or two months ago, in a July 13, 2011 stakeholders meeting, teleconference. Uh, and I understand the USCIS went over some highlights of the AC21 and how it impacts uh, the process. Can you just give us a quick overview of some of the highlights? Absolutely. Uh, so on July 13th of uh, this year, USCIS uh, conducted a stakeholders meeting where they indicated to uh, stakeholders that they're going to be coming out with regulations in the next 8 to 12 months. And they had some ideas about what those regulations would look like and shared some of their proposals and also uh, solicited some feedback from, from stakeholders. Just to be clear, a stakeholder is anybody who has an interest in the issue and uh, the USCIS invited, for example, employers and employees and businesses and the government and whoever was interested. Absolutely. There is a wide range of interested parties on uh, uh, varying levels on, of the issue of AC21. Um, so USCIS came out with their, their main proposals. And again, they were anticipating coming out with regulations in the next 8 to 12 months based on this type of feedback that they're getting from interested parties. So their main proposals were to, uh, initially, the, the main proposal was to have AC21 notification be mandatory upon the filing of a, uh, upon utilization of AC21. Currently, AC21 notification uh, to USCIS, n letting USCIS know that you have a pending 45 for 180 days or more and that you're moving to a uh, same or similar occupational classification with a different employer, 
currently is not something that's mandatory. It's recommended in one of those memos that you had mentioned before, but it's not a mandatory uh, requirement at this time. I remember in June 2001 they said it is expected to that the person notify the USCIS, but you're saying because it is not an absolute legal requirement, some people are doing it and others are not. Right, and we do see sometimes where people don't notify USCIS might deny or at least issue a notice of intent to deny a case where the uh, original I-140 petitioner withdrew the petition. So this probably is going to that point and trying to resolve that so that USCIS knows the movement of uh, you know, an AOS applicant. But in addition to making this notification a requirement, they're also proposing adding a filing fee for this AC-21 notification, uh, which, uh, again, was suggested. And USCIS is of the belief that if they're doing a determination, an adjudication, if you will, uh, that it's a service and they're a benefits agency and they should be paid for it. Okay. In addition to that, uh, again, one of the requirements, as you all know, is that the job needs to be in a same or similar occupational classification. And up until this point, that's been a pretty broad uh, – USCIS has been very broad and, and generous with uh, their interpretation about what constitutes a same or similar occupational classification. Uh, with this stakeholders meeting, though, they indicated that they might use, quote, a number of published sources and other comparable elements to make that determination of what constitutes same or similar occupational classification. Unfortunately, USCIS uh, wasn't really clear about what those number of published sources would be, but I think the concern is perhaps, you know, is USCIS going to perhaps maybe narrow how generous they've been with making that determination based on using more information to come up with that determination? Um, so those were the two things that were mainly related to uh, use of AC-21 in the green card context. Uh, there were some other things that were, were brought up. One was uh, the uh, the under ACWIA, the uh, H-1B whistleblower provi provision, uh, what uh, USCIS had proposed was that the uh, a whistleblower, like if an H-1B employee blows a whistle on an employer who's not complying with the H-1B regulations, the terms and conditions of the H-1B program, that that employee should be given a grace period in order to seek new H-1 employment, uh, especially in the event that that employer is subsequently uh, debarred and can no longer uh, sponsor that particular employee. So that was another recommendation. And this came out uh, in light of a recent, uh, a recent case where some school systems in uh, Baltimore, uh, Baltimore uh, I'm sorry, in Maryland, uh, were kind of going through the same issue of uh, debarment. So that was raised, uh, that, that specific case was raised during the uh, stakeholders meeting and the impact of this particular proposed provision with uh, protection of whistleblowers. Okay. And what about the uh, other provision? Last thing that was uh, something that everybody seemed to be interested in is extending H-1B for spouses who are independently on H-1 where, they're, you know, where they have a spouse who is also on H-1B, but one of those spouses is eligible to extend beyond the six-year limit. Um, so basically, if a husband and wife, both on H-1B, one has a green card case going that permits them to extend beyond the six-year limit, but the other doesn't, the proposal is to promote family unity even if the the spouse who does not have a green card case that would permit a six plus year extension that that person should be able to ride as a as a sort of dependent on their spouse's case because again for family unity and the fact that the one spouse has initiated a green card case, making them eligible to stay beyond six years okay and just i didn't want the listeners today to get a little confused because uh, maybe we should have done this sort of teleconference, this summary of the July 13th at the very end. 
uh, rather than at the very beginning. But we thought it would be helpful for you all as employers to try and point out what are the really hot topics and hot issues that the USCIS and the government is looking at possible inconsistencies or gaps or issues that need to be addressed and maybe that in the regulations that they may implement that they could consider looking at this issue as well. Um, I understand that obviously we put a little bit like the card before the horse because we are assuming a level of knowledge on AC21 that some of you as employers may or may not have. So now let's get into the real meat and potatoes, the nitty gritty of what exactly AC21 allows in terms of H1B extensions beyond the six years. So normally, as most of you know, H1B is only permitted for a maximum of six years for your beneficiary or employee. But when AC21 law was passed about 10 plus years ago, almost 11 years ago, it provides for two possible exceptions where people can continue to extend uh, without having to actually pack up and leave the country at the end of the six years for one full year and then return back on a new six-year H1 again subject to the quota if the, 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 the following exceptions apply. One is the section, it's called 106C, where the employee or the beneficiary is a beneficiary of an I-140 petition or labor certification that has been filed more than 365 days earlier. In that case, the H-1B can be extended in one-year increments. The second exception is Section 104A, and under this, if the employee or the beneficiary has an I-140 immigrant petition filed by you as the employer, and the priority date is not yet current for that employee, then the H-1B can be extended in three-year increments. Um, and the AC-21 didn't talk about this, but as most of you already probably are aware, uh, you can get H-1 extensions after the six years. If you were, for example, outside the country, you can recapture the time abroad, or if you're switching uh, to dependent or other non-immigrant status, like you switch from H-1B to H-4, then you can stay in the U.S. because they use the decoupling memo and decouple the time on H-1 and H-4, or L-1 and L-2, et cetera. So that's a little sort of a broad framework on the AC-21 and H-1 uh, extensions. Um, why don't we have, Kevin, you go over and explain to people, is an approved extension of stay request, which is based on 106C, which I just explained, the 365-day rule, or the 104A, which is the I-140 approval, still valid even after the green card case has been denied? Right. So uh, one of the things that wasn't really clear, uh, especially prior to the stakeholders meeting, was you know, what happens if you're, you're eligible to extend beyond the six-year limit and you do so, but after it's approved, the, let's say something happens to the green card case, well, am I still eligible for the time that I was already approved for? And USCIS seemed to indicate in the July uh, 13th uh, stakeholders meeting that, yes, the person would still continue to remain valid for the time that they have already been approved for, even though the green card case was subsequently denied or uh, just otherwise ended, but that same beneficiary would have to find another basis in order to extend H-1B after that validity period expires. So just for example, let's say someone has an approved I-140 non-current priority date, that person's eligible for a three-year extension under AC-21 law. Um, let's say as soon as the extension request is approved, a year or so later that uh, I-140 is subsequently revoked for cause and uh, 
you know, for whatever reason, they don't pursue the case anymore. That person still has the remaining two years of H-1 time, but within those two years, that person needs to do something, get another green card case going, so that they will be able to uh, extend beyond uh, the validity period of, of where they are at currently. Actually, that's a very good beneficial because we do get asked that question, and all along we've been saying there's no law or regulation, but they've generally been approving the entire three years and not revoking it or canceling it. So we've been kind of giving advice to people and individuals and companies on this issue. So it's good to know that the USCIS is sort of leaning in the direction of saying it makes sense. Once we approve it, it would be too difficult for us to monitor it. We'll just let the three years stay. Thank you, Kevin. Alyssa, let's come to you now because I know there's a whole a bunch of information about the entire issue of, you know, cap exemption which applies to certain institutions of higher education and to nonprofit governmental research organizations or a related or affiliated nonprofit entity and how the H-1B quota or H-1B caps and quotas should not apply. Would you go over that in brief? Because first of all, we have employers who are cap exempt or employers who belong to universities or hospitals or institutions. And I think sometimes people say, even if we are not employing them directly, if the person is working at a university or a hospital, working at as different to employed by, I think those are important issues that we've discussed. They are, and it's it's a really it's another hot issue, Sheila. Um, and thank you for having me here today. Um, with respect to cap exempt uh, companies or employers, it's a really nice benefit because one, you're not subject to the numerical. Fixed, fixed amount. And two, you don't have to wait for that October 1 start date every year. So it's really convenient for people that may have programs that start throughout the year. Um, these, this does not apply to employers uh, under AC 21 Section 103, uh, an institution of higher edu education pursuant to the Higher Education Act of 1965, uh, or a related or affiliated nonprofit en entity, and we'll get more into that later because that one's really under scrutiny now, um, a nonprofit research organization uh, or a governmental research organization. Um, and very recently, like I said, they're looking more at the related or affiliated issue. Uh, in March of 2011, USCI announced it would review its policy for permitting such employers to file as cap-exempt as related or affiliated with an institution of higher education. And they didn't really give us a clear answer, but basically if saying that if you have previously filed as that, show us that you have and will you know, defer to our prior decision. They don't want to start necessarily being inconsistent. Um, and they're giving deference to these prior decisions based on its June 6, 2006 memo, which defined the affiliated nonprofit entities. Uh, and this is a nonprofit entity that is connected or associated with an institution of higher education. And this is key here through shared ownership or control by the same board or federation uh, operated by an institution of higher education or attached to an institution of higher education as a member branch cooperative or subsidiary. And, and so the, the key is how do you show that relationship? And so you have to have, at this point, if you're new to filing as cap-exempt, you want to make sure that you have this clear affiliation and it's strongly documented. And what the person is doing is in furtherance of this affiliation and relationship. Um, until 2010, CIS you know, had been more lenient on this interpretation uh, of cap-exempt cases 
common common uh, sponsor would be a hospital, a teaching hospital affiliated with the university. Uh, so they've seen a little more scrutiny, but it's not just limited to them. Again, it's any of these nonprofit organizations that are affiliated with the universities. Uh, in addition, the recent memo did not also clarify the situation where the petitioner has not had a previous decision on how the USCIS will adjudicate or determine the cap exempt status. So they're not giving us more information going forward on what their standard will be. So it's at this point, you want to make sure you're filing it stronger. Uh, and making sure you have really good documentation of that relationship. Uh, USCIS has stated that if an employer, again, had previously filed uh, a case as an exempt employer, they are not allowed to file as a cap subject employer just to avoid the strict adjudication unless there has been a change in the company. So really what they're saying is you either are or you aren't, and you can't be flip-flopping back and forth between, between the two when you're filing cases just for your convenience. Aha, uh -huh. so, so basically you need to be consistent. Mm -hmm. And I guess the real reason if we go back and think about this is to encourage universities because we have a shortage of good professors and tenure-track teachers and researchers, et cetera. And so, you know, organizations associated with those to show that we don't want you to have to wait till October because the school semester starts in end of August or early September, and we want to make sure that our students in America can continue to get educated and trained even if we are relying on outside professionals, whether it's H1s or what have you, to train our students. Right, and, and in the health field too, obviously we're, we always hear we have a, a shortage of medical professionals. Well, these residency programs um, for the H1B doctors may start in the summer, and you just can't wait for October 1. So that's why it's really important for those institutions as well. Okay, very good. Um, when we refer sometimes to the sections of the law, we also refer some either to the AC-21 law or actually to INA, the Immigration and Nationality Act. And there's a section which allows for H-1 portability, which is Section 214N of the Immigration and Nationality Act. And under this law, or this section of the law, uh, we find that many of you as H-1B employer companies have filed a new H-1 for your future employee to start working, file the petition and say, okay, we have filed the extension or the change of employer, please come and start working at my company as soon as possible, and we don't need to wait for weeks or months for the USCIS to make a decision. So Kevin, is there a risk with this, and what are the risks for the employer and the employee? Right, well, as you mentioned, 214N does permit uh, an H1, uh, someone who's already been subject to the cap, to begin working upon the filing of a properly filed non-frivolous petition. But just because USCIS permits you to do something doesn't always mean that you necessarily should because situations could arise that could uh, put gaps in one's non-immigrant status and just uh, really complicate their immigration history. Uh, the risk is that an H-1B worker could begin working for the second company upon the filing of their case, but what if that case is subsequently denied for cause? Uh, if company one didn't withdraw their petition, there's a possibility that if there's some time remaining available that that H-1 worker could go back to Company 1 in order to prevent falling out of uh, status. But typically, you know, most, most cases, the companies would withdraw their petition so there's no, uh, no H-1B uh, wage obligation upon, you know, the, the H-1 worker leaving. So that might always, not always be an option, and it, it could just go to a funny place if someone is in a situation where they go to work for someone without knowing for certain what the adjudication of the case is 
just to find out later on that it's denied, and now I have, I once had two work uh, employers, now I have none. Right, right, okay. Well, so that's the risk both for you as an employer and for your employee uh, for the short term and the long term. And I'm sure as an employer, if your employee left, you would be hesitant to allow them to welcome them back. So, you know, think about the other prior employer in the same vein. You could be the prior employer, you could be the future employer. Absolutely. And also, uh, you know, sometimes what will happen is it's not just the filing of, it's not just going from company one to company two. There will be a string of these cases where they keep moving from work, uh, company to company. Right, and that becomes even riskier, Kevin, because you know you're you're not only pending one decision, you're pending two decisions. So if I'm moving from one company to a second company, um, and then you're moving to a third company, you know, as an employer, you know, you want to monitor your cases, and you're supposed to withdraw these cases if you're not using them. So if somebody's leaving uh, while a case is pending, if that is withdrawn, uh, you have a gap in between the first one that was approved, and then the second pending H1 that was filed. So this middle petition becomes a bridge from company A to company B to company C. And if, if you're hiring somebody and they come to you and they show that they just have a pending receipt of an H-1B petition that was filed and they don't have an approval, that means that even if you have a valid petition that could be approved, that company with the pending case that one could be denied or they could withdraw it, and then your employee is not necessarily going to be able to get an approval to allow him to stay, him or her, to stay in the work, work in the U.S. and could possibly result in them falling out of status, being here unlawfully, um, disrupting their employment with you. So it's always really important to see a succession of approvals when you're bringing on H-1B employees. And this is the Janice Belodny memo that we've talked about, that, that we've discussed in prior discussions. But basically you're saying that even if the company sees H-1 petition with the I-94 card is approved, with the I-94 card attached to the approval notice, if the company B H-1 is denied in the, in the interim that unless the original company A's H-1 was valid the entire time, you, it may be somewhat risky for the employer and the employee to rely on that H-1, even though f on the face of it, facially, it appears to be a va valid H-1 approval with the I-94 card that there is some level of risk because in the interim you have fallen out of status. And so that's the risk that you as an employer are facing with that situation. And Kevin, there are other more serious problems that exist where the I-94 has expired. Can you explain that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, just one point about what you were just mentioning. Uh, another situation that could happen is that they could adjudicate the middle petition, Company 2's petition, before Company 3's petition. And if Company 2's petition is adjudicated to a denial, then certainly even if Company 3's petition was approved, it wouldn't be the extension of stay wouldn't be approved and you wouldn't get that I-94 and might have to travel abroad to, to obtain a new visa. And it's outside of the scope of what we're talking about here. But that could be a problem, especially for uh, uh, certain workers that are, you know, do, do, uh, working at an end client, uh, obtaining that visa, and they could get stuck outside because of this issue. Um, but mm -hmm. in addition to that, there are uh, more serious problems that um, if a beneficiary, you know, in dealing with this bridging scenario, if the, the H-1B beneficiary's I-94 card has actually expired during this time between the filings of, you know, the second and the third company's uh, uh, petitions, then not only would that person uh, fall out of status for failing to maintain the terms and conditions of H-1B status, but any time after the expiration of the I-94 would uh, accrue unlawful presence. And as many people know, if you accrue 180 days of unlawful presence, that would trigger a three-year bar from reentry into the United States. 
and a one year accru accruing one year of unlawful presence would trigger a 10-year bar upon departure. So they're very serious consequences. And um, again, it's just why basically the moral of the story is to just uh, wait until the approvals. Yeah, absolutely, Kevin. That's, that's really the best practice, and it's what we always advise clients to do. And we know that the premium processing fee is expensive, and they continue to, to raise it uh, over the years. But ultimately, it, that could be a, a very good investment to, to spend that money to avoid disruption in status, disruption in employment, having to you know wait for somebody to come back, or possibly even file additional petitions to correct the situation. Right. And even from the employer's perspective, you know, even though you are potentially able to have the employee start, the risk is if in the middle it, you have to discontinue and can't mm -hmm. have the employee work on the project, then the end client's unhappy, you're unhappy, mm -hmm. and even if you're the end client, you've lost time and money in the mm -hmm. process. Um, and so sometimes it's an additional investment that needs to be done. Uh, well, and you're aware also of portability, which is based on the PERM I-140, which is filed by an employer, which is different from the H-1 petitioner, as most of you know, green card is based on the concept of a future job offer. And so you can have one employer file the green card and a different employer uh, file and the employee be working with the H-1B employer with the green card being processed by a completely different employer. And the timing of the H-1B filing is critical if it is an extension beyond the six years for your employee because the basis of the extension has to remain valid at the time of the adjudication, not just until the time of filing the case. Um, and so we have, you know, this whole issue that's, that's sort of pending here. I know we were going to have to discuss the whole issue of portability for those who previously had held H-1B status. Um, Alyssa? Right, right. It, you know, some of the things we've talked about before earlier in this teleconference is, you know, what if your H-1 time run, runs out? What if you have to change from H-1 to, to H-4 or to another status to stay here? Um, there's Section 214N of, of the INA, which allows us to port from from one H-1B employer to, to another. And the guidance up until late of last year um, was pretty open and people could potentially move from H-1B to H-4 and then back to start working for the new H-1 employer upon filing of the H-1B petition. But what we saw come out last year from E-Verify and then later subsequently from USCIS is, is that this really, they're saying this is not allowed. Um, although the statute specifically reads, um, it allows portability to foreign nationals who was previously issued a visa or otherwise provided H-1B status. USCIS is now saying, absolutely, this does not, this does not meet the, the situation of H-1B to H-4 or another non-H-1B status back to H-1. You need to wait for the approval for that new H-1 to start working. Interesting. Interesting that they would actually sort of almost try to come up with a legal way how to mm -hmm. circumvent the actual wording of the actual law in AC-21, which says if you ever previously mm -hmm. held H-1B petition or a status or a visa, uh, and now they're saying no, and it's partially verified, as Alyssa just pointed out, and it could be a combination of them just not knowing how to figure this out, so they're trying to fit a round peg into a square hole by making everything, trying to fit into that uh, equation. Yeah, I think you're right. With E-Verify, it's, uh, it was more of a logistic problem with E-Verify being able to confirm people that are going through this sort of kind of, it's, it's complex immigration history, and I don't think that the uh, technology that E-Verify is using can, can wrap 
can get wrapped around that right now. So I think instead of trying to reconcile those two things, I think they're just taking a different interpretation, but not necessarily one that's consistent with the INA. Okay. So, Kevin, let's go to you now because you're, you're focusing your work in the green card area. How does AC21 provide green card portability? Because as an employer, I would like to know how I can bring this employee on board and to work in my company. Uh, if the person has already done the green card through somebody else? And what are the restrictions and what do I, as the employer, maybe have to look into? Yeah, absolutely. This could be a really good benefit for uh, for employers because they may be able to sponsor someone for a green card without actually having to do a labor certification and be make, make some sort of financial commitment the way traditional uh, green card cases, employment-based green card cases are filed. So generally, in order to be eligible for uh, AC21 in the green card context, the green card, uh, the the adjustment of status applicant must be the beneficiary of an approved and valid I-140 petition. Um, they also must have a 45 case pending for 180 days or more and be moving to a new job that is in the same or similar occupational classification. Um, as we had mentioned before, the same or similar occupational classification is something that uh, would require AC21 notification, which might become a requirement, and how they would make that, how USCIS would make that determination may also change. With respect to the validity of the I-140, again, that goes back to the only precedent decision that exists with respect to AC-21 law, matter of Alizan, which Sheila, you had mentioned, and that basically is saying that, you know, the I-140 needs to be approvable when it was filed. Even if it wasn't adjudicated, it must have been at the time of filing valid and approvable. Okay, so at this point, uh, I guess that actually ties into the next question that I had for you, Kevin, um, or Alyssa, maybe you, you, could, you could take a quick dive. Happy to jump in, yeah. Okay. What if the prior green card employer gets a notice of intent to revoke or a notice of intent to deny an NOIR or NOID on the previously approved I-140 petition and makes the obvious business decision that most of us as employers will make, which is why should I waste my time and money replying when this employee has already quit my employment? What happens to the person's green card and if that person is now working for my company because they previously were with a different employer. Right, no, and, and that's a huge, huge issue when people are moving around and the I-140 is really your your basis for this green card application, whether it's with the first employer or the third employer down the road. And the fact is the I-140 information from CIS is communicated to the employer. It's not going to the employee. So you can imagine if you know employment has ended with a company, it may or may not be on good terms. They may or may not want to, you know, help that employee out. Or, Sheila, like you said, why are they going to spend the time and money on somebody that's not going to end up helping out their business or their company? Uh, and, you know, if the app, green card applicant themselves doesn't know about it, doesn't have an opportunity to respond, the employer is not responding to it, that could be the downfall of their, of their green card case. And this is a, actually a, a reason why in, in our H-1B department we tell people maintain your H-1. Maintain your H-1 as much as possible. Even if an employer has somebody coming to them and they're like, I can use my green card portability, consider keeping them on H-1. Because if that previous employer, if that previous I-140 doesn't work out, that's the end of their 485 application at that time. And that could be, you know, a huge gap in employment, disrupt your business if they're no longer able to work for you because their AD, EAD is EAD becomes invalid, and if the green cards discontinued, future H-1 extensions are no longer possibly either. Right. It may not be possible. But if you have that approved H-1 already, like we spoke earlier, they're not going around and revoking them. 
So you right. could potentially still have time to do your own case and, and stay in the game there. Uh, what we did suggest because of all the problems that this could cause in that July 2011 uh, stakeholders meeting with CIS, uh, Murthy Law Firm actually suggested uh, that there should be a standard practice to issue notice to that I-140 beneficiary, the green card applicant, through their, based on their pending 485 application, um, if there's been AC-21, that they should be notified about, about these notices of intent to revoke, notices of intent to, de to deny, so they honestly have a fair chance of, of participating in the process and hopefully avoiding, you know, losing the entire case for themselves. Um, yeah. Because the regulations do require that applicants be made aware of derogatory information about their case and be given an opportunity to rebut that information, and they're just not getting it, it right now. It makes sense. I mean, yeah. the U.S. Constitution affords us due process, and if someone's taking away your life, your liberty, uh, property, and your green, entire green card cafe is going to fall on its face, it makes sense. So I'm very glad that the attorney from the Murthy Law Firm uh, spoke up at the teleconference with USCIS and recommended that you know, opportunity should be given both to the employer and the employee to contact both parties so that neither party is left in the, in the dark. Uh, and I'm proud of our lawyers for t being so, taking a leadership and being so proactive. Um, Kevin, what about if the employer decides to withdraw the I-140 petition? How does that impact the future employer and the employee? And what, what does that mean for the green card case and to continue employment? Well, we do know now that uh, a 45 applicant should still be eligible for uh, adjustment if the if AC21 basically had vested. So, if the other requirements for AC21 had vested, the 45 had been pending for 180 days or more, and the the uh, the worker found a job in a same or similar occupational classification as the original perm job, it should not matter that the I140 petition was withdrawn. Uh, as long as the uh, I-140 petition is not withdrawn for cause, for a substantive reason, then there should be uh, no issue. If the I-140, however, was withdrawn for a substantive reason, meaning USCIS approved the I-140 but then subsequently issued a notice of intent to revoke for, example, uh, like ability to pay or something with the beneficiary's education, well, that goes back to that matter of Alwazan case. That What USCIS would argue is that that petition was not valid. It wasn't approvable when it was filed. Thus, it's not valid, and so it can't be a basis to use AC-21. But, again, as long as uh, the petition was not withdrawn for cause and the other requirements of AC-21 have been met, that person should still be eligible for adjustment. Now, sometimes because no AC-21 notification is not required right now, uh, USCIS could still deny a 45, which we've seen without issuing a notice of intent to deny or an RFE, but more frequently they issue the RFE and the notice of intent to deny, and we explain uh, the eligibility under AC-21, and even though the I-140 petition was withdrawn, it was approved and 180 days had passed, it's a new job that's, that's eligible for AC-21, there shouldn't be a problem. Okay. Well, I mean, and you as employers who are participating in today's teleconference call may wonder if you have a legal obligation to withdraw the I-140 petition. And the fact is, by law, there is absolutely no requirement for an employer to revoke or withdraw the I-140 petition after it's revoked. Usually it has no direct benefit in most cases unless in a future green card case there is the question of the ability, the employer's ability to pay. And you as the employer now need to show that so many of the employees have left and therefore you no longer have this outstanding monetary or financial obligation to the prior employee who has left the employment. Unlike, this is very different than the H-1B situation where USCIS expects the employer 
to revoke the H-1B petition in order to ensure that as the H-1B employer, you are no longer liable for the H-1B prevailing wage requirement as, the, as determined by the U.S. Department of Labor. I know we've touched upon a lot of issues, and I really hope that we have been clear and certainly not confused you because our goal was to try and explain how you as an employer can benefit from the American Competitiveness in the 21st Century Act, or AC21, and how your business can continue to grow and thrive by taking advantage of H-1B portability, of green card portability, and generally to continue to enjoy certain benefits without having to incur huge costs in processing a fresh green card from scratch. Um, on behalf of Kevin Andrews, Alyssa Klein, and myself, Sheila Murthy, and each and every single person here at the Murthy Law Firm, we are delighted and honored that you could join us for today's teleconference call. We sure look forward to continuing to guide you, your business, and your employees with all of your immigration issues. And you know the number one place on the Internet and elsewhere is Murthy.com. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day, and we look forward to continuing to take excellent care of you and your business.